Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. If you're looking for news, tips, and stories about fishing the Great Lakes, you've come to the right place. And now your host, Chris Larson. Good evening and welcome to Fishhawk Live. Thanks so much for everyone for joining us tonight. And our guest this evening is Mark Romanak from Fishing 411 TV. Mark, thanks for coming on the show tonight. Chris, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to this evening. Mark, before we get started, uh, for a few folks out there who don't know who you are, what your show is about, tell us a little bit about yourself and Fishing 411 TV. Well, Fishing 411 is on Sportsman's Channel and World Fishing Network. Uh, we've been there 15 years, believe it or not, so we've been doing it a long time. Uh, so we produce a national uh, television show. Uh, we also are the guys behind the Precision Trolling Data app. I'm the guy that uh, does all the testing and, and essentially has uh, created that app over the years. So those are our two big things. And then every once in a while, when I get a little spare time, I still do a little outdoor writing. That's how I broke into the industry some 30 years ago. Yeah, that's that's very cool, Mark. And uh, just your story, we, we shared a little bit about your story. We had you on early in the podcast. Uh, I think if you go back to like episode five or six, you were on there and talked a little bit about some of those early days with what you guys were up to and, and kind of how you got started. Um, it looks like you're on the road right now. I can see you're in a hotel room. I can see gear in the background. What do you guys have going on right now? Uh, we're in Port Clinton, Ohio, and so we're going to see if we can't find some walleyes. Usually this time of year is very good fishing here, um, but lately we've had some very bad weather. We had northeast, literally hurricane-type winds here um, for the last several days, so the lake is kind of chewed up. So tomorrow is iffy. We don't know if it's going to be good, bad, or indifferent. Hopefully it's going to be good, but uh, you never know until you get out there and give it a try, and that's what we're going to do for the next few days. Yeah, so you guys are on the road out on Lake Erie right now. And if you guys have questions for Mark, he fishes kind of everywhere where there's fish. You'll find Mark Romanek and his son, Jake. Um, if you got questions for him, go ahead and put those in the comments. And like we do every week here, we will pick the question of the night, and you'll get a Fishhawk swag package with a hat and lots of other stuff, lots of stickers and whatever else the, the folks back at HQ have to throw in that box. So go ahead and start putting your questions up for Mark, and we'll get to those. But, uh, Mark, uh, how did the show get started? You talk a little bit about where it's at, um, but how did you guys get started in doing a TV show? Well, it's, it's pretty much based in the Great Lakes here, which is good because this is the water we're familiar with here. So pretty much most of our shows are shot within the Great Lakes basins. But uh, it got started through a gentleman called Mike Avery. Now, Mike Avery and I, and I go back a long ways. I actually met Mike uh, early in my career. Mike was a TV reporter, and then he branched off there and, and started his own television show. And he came to me and said he wanted to expand and do another fishing show, but he wanted me to host it. And that's how this got started, because I really didn't know anything about television back then. You know, and Mike was gracious enough to teach us. And so we got started together. We were working together for a few years. And then Mike decided that he wanted to phase out of television. And he gifted me the whole idea. And if I wanted to run with it, it was mine to run with. And that's exactly what we did. So I've been great, you know, you know, friends with Mike for many, many years. And we're in gratitude that he was able to set us up um, with Fishing 411. So it wouldn't have happened without the help of our good buddy, Mike Avery. And yeah, you guys are, are Michigan boys. I know Mike Avery is a Michigan guy. So uh, what was that like early on getting started doing that? 
<laughs> well, um, you know, it was easy for Mike because he was a little pro at it because he'd been doing it for some time. For us, we knew nothing. And so uh, essentially we were just a blank slate. And I'd say, Mike, what do we do? How do we do it? And uh, he was very gracious and, and patient with us and teaching us. Eventually, we kind of learned the game. And these days, we like to think that we've got the game figured out pretty good as far as we're producing a high quality television and doing it week after week. But uh, we would have never been able to get there if it wasn't for the help of others. Uh, no man stands alone, and that's exactly the case in this instance. If it wasn't for Mike, uh, I'm not sure we would have ever been able to figure this game out. So Mike helped you get started, but now it's a family business. There's a lot of family businesses out there, construction business, pizza place, any restaurant. What's it like being in a family business doing a television show? Uh, I, I know that that, that uh, the significant others are part of the whole deal too, but uh, you and Jake are the ones that are are forward facing, at least on in front of the camera. But uh, I know that you get a, a lot of help from the, from the rest of the family as well. Well, it's true. Um, Jake and I, of course, are the front people. We're the cameramen, or, you know, the guys in front of the camera, I should say. Uh, we also have a full-time camera guy. His name is Gabe Van Warmer that works with us. He's the guy that's behind the scenes doing the videography work. He also does a fair amount of our editing, and Jake does a lot of our editing as well. Both of our wives, my wife Mary and Jake's wife Paige, are also employed in the company, and they're doing the behind-the-scenes things, mm -hmm. social media, that kind of stuff. Um, and so together, it makes for a very effective team. Uh, we got five of us that we all have our skill sets. Um, we all kind of run with the things that we're the best at. And uh, in the end, we think we come up with a pretty darn good product uh, as a result of that. I know I've seen a lot of those uh, business shows on CNBC where they go into the pizza palace and the guys are throwing spaghetti sauce at each other. Uh, what's that like kind of get, getting all those personalities to work together when, when at the end of the day, y'all have to go home and, and sit down and have dinner with each other? <laughs> it's not that bad, really. Um, I mean, as far as the ladies, they're just a dream to work with. They really understand that we need to travel a lot, that we're gone a lot. They understand that. They give us a lot of freedom. Um, and when the fish are biting, Jake and I get along great because everything's just going great. It's when the fish aren't biting that sometimes we get on each other's nerves. And if you've ever spent time in a fishing boat, even with a family member, you know that it's not all, it's not always roses. Um, somebody drops the fish at the landing net on a tough day. It gets pretty quiet in that boat for a while. <laughs> pretty quiet. We're starting to get some, some uh, questions. Go ahead and load up the questions there in the comments, whether you're on YouTube or on Facebook for Mark. Uh, yeah, so who wins that, Mark, when uh, when things aren't going well and, I, you know, I've been in that boat and things aren't going well and you start trying to figure out what's the next step and everybody's got an opinion. So uh, whose opinion do we usually go with? Well, you've seen Jake, right? So he's 6'5 and 260 pounds. I think that pretty much answers who wins. So <laughs> so Simon always wins. But But you have the age and experience. I have, yeah, I have the age and experience, but you know, the fact of the matter is when it comes to fishing, Jake's skill sets are pretty incredible. I mean, he didn't just learn to fish from me. He learned to fish from a lot of other people. You know, he worked in the back of charter boats for many years. So he's got a lot of tournament pros. Um, there are his friends as well. So he's worked with the charter industry. He's worked with tournament pros. He's worked with me. I mean, the kid is an excellent fisherman. And so, um, I hate to say it, but, um, many times he just simply is, uh, it's hard to beat when it comes to, uh, to making these decisions. All right, we got a question here. It's uh, from Dale Hickmott, and he's missing one word here, but I'll translate. This is uh, when fishing with three-color lead core, how do you know how much line to put out after you've let out your three-color? 
That's a pretty easy one, actually. Uh, what we typically do is we understand through precision trolling how deep three colors of lead core is going to run at various speeds. And so now that I know what that number is going to be, I don't want to mess with that number. I'm using three color because I'm trying to reach fish at that depth zone. So I let out that leader, um, the lure. Uh, I let out the three colors of lead core. And literally, as soon as that main line or your backing starts to touch the water, maybe six to 10 feet of line, I'm going to clip my board on at that point and send it out to the side. So I'm not letting any additional line out. Now, if you wanted to take that three color and make it run a little deeper, you could run more backing and that would get you deeper. Um, but you wouldn't know exactly how deep because that data is not out there. Um, but let's say you want a three color to run as deep as a five color. Yeah, you probably could make that happen if you're willing to put out a pile of extra backing. Well, you guys are in Fort Clinton, Ohio uh, right now. We're going to go chase some walleyes. What is your favorite Great Lakes species to pursue? Well, I think that's simple and easy for me. I just love walleyes. I've been chasing them my whole life. Um, I'd like to think that we're pretty good at it. Uh, sometimes they, uh, they can humble us. There's no question about it. But I just like everything about walleyes, and particularly Great Lakes walleyes. You know, big open water, um, running many miles offshore to find fish. I just love that. I mean, the big basins of water we have in the Great Lakes, um, I feel most at home when I'm far away from shore. Mark, how about your favorite port? We talked about uh, your favorite fish. That's a walleye. What's the place, if, if I told you you could only fish out of one port the rest of your life, what are you picking? And that's a tough one, but I'd have to say Port Clinton. And the reason for that, I've got some really, really good memories here. Um, very first time I fished here was the first time that the PWT came here. I was fishing that tournament. I think it was 1990, 91 or something around there. Um, but it was a very good experience. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. And if you've been to Port Clinton, the community just lives and breathes fishing. If you're a fisherman here, you're welcome. I mean, every restaurant you go in, every gas station you stop at, people love fishermen because they spend a lot of money in this community. And, uh, and so Port Clinton is a great place to be if you love walleye fishing. And the fishing's always good here, but it's hardly ever better than it is in June. And, uh, and so early in June, you really can't go wrong if you're making a trip to Port Clinton, Ohio. How about how, how that fishery is, has evolved? You talked about going there in the early 90s. Um, what's it like now compared to then? And what do you think is kind of behind that? Well, in the early 90s, um, it was a lot of big fish. And I mean big fish. Um, to put it in perspective, that first tournament that was here, I think I had somewhere around 88 pounds. And I ended up in like 88th place, if you can imagine that. Just enormous big bags of fish were brought in here. And it was the very first time that anybody had figured out that they could catch these fish trolling. Prior to that, most everybody was doing traditional walleye fishing methods here. But the tournament was one trolling. And it kind of opened up this basin and opened up people's eyes that they could catch these walleyes in cold water trolling. And uh, at that point in time, people didn't know that you could fish crankbaits in 35, 36 degree water and be successful. But now we know that that's pretty much commonplace. Uh, there's no month of the year, if you can get a boat on Lake Erie, you can't catch these fish trolling. And, but back in those days, um, we just simply did not know that. Now we're dealing with a different fishery. Now we have a lot more fish in the system than we have been, but the average size is nowhere close. Um, tomorrow, I'm going to be really happy if we're out there. If we can give a three-pound average, maybe see a four- or five-pound fish, I'm going to be very tickled with that. That's a good day of fishing on you know, the western basin of Lake Erie these days. The numbers are here, um, but the size is not. It's just a matter of the fluctuations and what happens in fisheries. They can't always have lots of big fish. Uh, it just can't always be like that. 
Mark, you kind of fish all over the Great Lakes. You fish the Eastern Basin. You fish the Western Basin. I know you got a lot more depth in the Western Basin. You've got other species out there. What are some of the main differences, though, when you're chasing walleyes, if you were going to go out of some place like Port Clinton compared to going out of uh, somewhere in the Eastern Basin, let's say in New York? Well, the big thing to keep in mind about the Port Clinton area or all the Western Basin is these are transient fish. They come here in the springtime to spawn. And then once they're done spawning, the adult size fish, the larger fish and the, and the age class fish that we're all seeking, they don't stay here much very long. They start moving. And so it's a pipeline. We start seeing fish going back to the east, heading back to the eastern basin where the water is cooler, where they're going to spend most of the summertime. And so right now it's transition time. We've got fish moving through. You can sit down on a school of five pounders and think you own the world and go back to that same school the next day and they're gone. They're literally gone. Those fish have moved east. They've moved on. Now, we do have resident fish here. They tend to be the smaller age class fish, and you can catch them all summer long, all the way through you know, June, July, August, even into September, you can catch those fish. Um, but the big fish that this area is known for is a seasonal thing. They get them primarily here in the spring and primarily in the fall. All right, James. James says, uh, when starting to troll early spring for walleye, is color a big factor in your choice of crank or is profile and depth more important? That's a good question. We hear this kind of stuff a lot. And honestly, um, depth is the most important thing for me. If I know exactly how deep fish are, um, because of the precision drilling app, I know what crankbaits are going to run to those depths. So I can target those fish very, very easily um, by using the app. So depth is critically important to me. Once I've picked a, a lure that I know will run to that depth, profile then becomes something I'm looking at. In the springtime, typically it's those minnow divers that have got the right profile. Things like deep husky jerks are going to be really tough to beat in that cold water. And as the water starts to gradually warm a little bit at a time, then we start seeing other baits light up and become very popular here as well. The bandit, the 5 8 ounce bandit, um, is another very good lure that is in that transition period. And then also the Reef Runner, the 800 series, is a lure that's very popular here as well. To mix one more in there, the flicker minnows, they're also in that category. But what all these lures have in common is they all have that similar minnow profile, long, skinny, but with a diving lift to get them to the depth that you're looking for. One of those four or five different baits is going to get the job done pretty much every day. Um, I usually start with husky jerks in cold water, and then I gravitate towards reef runners in warmer water uh, because the reef runner's got a little more action than the husky jerk does. All right, I'm glad that you said what you said there because that leads into Mark Holiday's question. And Mark says, uh, walleye-wise here on Erie, all I hear about is bandits, bandits, bandits. What is it about the bandit? <laughs> it's funny because I agree. And and sometimes, you know, I, I guess I just shrug my shoulders. But the reason so many people are talking about bandits is because they simply catch fish. Um, quite honestly, it's a solid bait. And more importantly, when you take it out of the package, tie it on your line and go fish with it, chances are it's going to run properly right out of the package. And that's a big deal. A lot of people just simply don't understand how to properly tune crankbaits. So if a crankbait gets out of tune for any reason, a lot of guys just can't make them tuned again and they simply don't work anymore. So the bandit comes out of the package tuned, stays tuned very well, catches fish, comes in a million colors. I mean, you figure. I mean, they've got it all going on. So... I have a, a, a wide variety of crankbaits, and I don't always run bandits, but I always have bandits available. They catch fish. It's just that simple. All right. That leads me to the next question. Uh, tuning. How do you go about tuning them? How do you know uh, if that, that lure is out of tune and then back into tune after you do some work on it? There's a couple of ways it will tell you immediately if a bait is tuned properly. If you're reeling a bait in to check it, 
Um, maybe you want to, you know, change the lead length. You're going to reel it in, check to see if it's got weeds on or whatever. If you're reeling it in and you're reeling fast, and that bait is not coming straight at you, if it's flaring off to the left or the right of center, that bait's out of tune. You should be able to reel the handle on your line counter reel as fast as you can turn it and keep that bait digging straight down in the water. If it blows out and wants to go left or right, it's not tuned. So if it goes out to the right, you have to go to the eye tie and you have to slightly tweak it. And the operative word here is slightly the opposite direction. So if the bait's running left, you bend the eye tie to the right. If the bait's running to the right, you bend the eye tie back to the left. And a little goes a long ways here. So that's where a lot of people go wrong with tuning crankbaits is they don't have the patience to go a little at a time. Nobody gets it the first try. So you had to try two or three times until you get that bait running dead center. And when you get it running dead center, it's going to catch more fish. And more importantly, it's going to run to the depth it was designed to run to. What is your spread going to look like tomorrow? You go out on Lake Erie tomorrow to Port Clinton. What do you guys plan to run when you're setting up and, and going after walleye out of Port Clinton? Well, this time of year, it's interesting because there's two primary bites that are going to happen. Um, it's either going to be a worm harness bite or it's going to be a crankbait bite. And so we're going to be prepared to do both. Um, when we get out there and we see the water clarity, that's going to help us determine a little bit about which way we want to go. The water has been very turbid here uh, and stained because of all the wind that they've had. So if we're dealing with stained water, we're probably going to favor the crankbait. Crankbait has more action, makes more noise. Uh, draws fish in from a greater distance, so it tends to work a little bit better in off-color water. If we're lucky enough to find some clear water and we can find some fish in clear water, we're probably going to go to the worm harness. And the reason why we want to go to the worm harness is we just enjoy that style of fishing. We use just the electric motor. It's peaceful. It's quiet. You don't have a kicker motor running or any of that kind of stuff because you can do the speeds you need to do for spinner fishing just with your electric motor. And, uh, and so depending on what situation we face tomorrow, uh, we could be doing worm harness or worm harnesses. We could be doing uh, crankbaits, or we might even mix them a little bit if the conditions allow. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, the conditions. And I know you're running worm harness compared to running crankbait. You've got different speeds there. Um, what kind of speeds do you typically run with, with either setup? Well, with worm harnesses, we typically top out in that one five, one six mile an hour. So it's a relatively slow you know, presentation. With crankbaits, you can go very slow, you can go moderate speed, you can go very fast or anywhere in between. Now, the water temperature should be in the 60s. And so that tells me we ought to be able to push the speeds up to two, two and a half miles an hour and still get these fish to react to crankbaits. So at two and a half miles an hour, that's too fast for spinners. All right. So we would have to find a common ground. If we wanted to go one five, one six with spinners, that's not the ideal speed for crankbaits, but we could still potentially catch fish, you know, at that speed with a high action crankbait. Um, the thing I have in mind to play with tomorrow a little bit is a crankbait called a maglet. It's actually designed for salmon and steelhead fishing, um, but it actually catches walleye very well. And what does that spread look like, Mark? How are you getting your lines out? Typically, um, we're going to use everything that's going to be on boards. And so if we go with the crawler presentation, uh, we're probably going to use snap weights tomorrow. And we're going to use the same length of line on each snap weight. So this is say we let out a 25-foot line, put a one-ounce snap weight on it, and then let it out another 25 feet. Then we're going to put another rig out, 25-foot line. Uh, we're going to put a slightly heavier snap weight, maybe an ounce uh, and a half in this instance. We have an ounce, then an ounce and a half. And then our third line on the side would probably jump up to a two ounce. So we'll have an ounce, an ounce and a half, and then two ounces of weight, all with the same lead length. So what that's going to do is it's going to run three different stratas of the water column. So we're going to be covering the water column very effectively early on in the day. 
Now, there's a pretty good chance that some of those lines are going to get bit. And some of them are not going to get bit as a result of the depth that they're running. If we start finding that that two ounce is the hot setup, we can take that ounce and a half and that one ounce out of the program and substitute out other two ounce lines in there. So we can get everything down to depth. But early in the day, when we don't have any idea for sure, you know, where the biters are at, we're going to saturate the water column with gear um, and let the fish tell us where they want to bite. All right, once again, guys, if you've got questions for Mark, go ahead and put them in the comments, and we'll get those questions to him and have him answer them for you live right here on the show. That's the great thing about this show is you can you can ask the pro what you want, and I don't have to ask the questions. You guys can ask the questions of him. But, uh, Mark, one of the other things that, that I like to ask people like yourself, we've got a lot of experience on the water. Um, there's a ton of people that are getting into this new that are coming into trolling right now. Maybe they've been fishing, you know, walleyes on their home lake, inland, and just jigging and doing that type of thing. And they want to get into trolling, maybe either go out on Lake Erie or maybe go out and troll for, for salmon and trout on the on Lake Michigan or on Lake Ontario. They're getting into this new. What would be your best advice for someone getting into trolling for the first time? Well, there's a lot of great places to get information and podcasts like we're doing right here are one of the best, you know, in my era, you know, in my early in my career, it was outdoor magazines is where that information came from. Nowadays, of course, we have video and we have television. Everybody has got a video page. It seems like these days. And so there's just a ton of information out there. Um, but what I caution people is that the internet's a big thing and you can get a lot of information from the internet. But you have to be a little bit careful who you're getting that information from. Some of the people who are spewing information aren't all that credible if you get my drift. And so if you pick names that you recognize, people you've heard of, people that have good reputations, you're probably going to get solid information. If you're getting information from XYZ guy on the internet, you may be getting sent astray. So be a little cautious there. I, uh, I look at the sites quite a bit on the internet, and sometimes I just shake my head when I see the advice that I see spewed out there. Um, it's not necessarily the best advice. So um, if you look at the credible people, they're going to give you credible answers. It's just that simple. What are kind of the common pitfalls that you see new people that are getting into trolling? What are kind of some of those kind of common mistakes that you see happening out on the water? There's a number of things that people will, will make mistakes at. And I think one of the very simple ones is fishing underneath their fish and not realizing where their gear is at in the water column. It's kind of the kiss of death and it's not just walleye fishing, it's salmon fishing. It's all kinds of trolling. These fish are pelagic. They're gonna find them various levels of the water column. And if you present your baits at their level or below them, there's a very good likelihood they won't see your presentation and they won't react to it. You're much better to be above these fish, but you don't want to be too far above them. You want to be within their, I call the zone of awareness. They have to be able to see it or hear it or feel it. And so I use the water clarity to determine that for me. For example, if I look up at the back of the boat and I can see the prop on my outboard, that's pretty clear water. That means I've probably got three, four foot of visibility. So I'm going to try to shoot my presentation to be two, three feet above where I'm marking fish on the sonar. If you can get that close, you're probably going to catch those fish. But if the water clarity is diminishing and you're ended up finding yourself fishing in dirty water, very stained water, you might have to be a little closer than that to actually trigger a strike. All right, here we got a couple questions coming in. This one, uh, I'm going to kind of try to get through this question. Uh, he's asking about pulling lip body baits in heavy current. Um, how much of a difference does that heavy current make as far as how it would line up with the precision trolling data uh, compared to maybe just a regular day on the water? How does that current affect those, those um, like mag lip thunderstick type baits? 
you know, it's huge. And what people don't understand is that when you're trolling in current, the precision trolling data is really not going to help you any because it's a completely different dynamic. When you're trolling downstream in a, in a river, lures are going to go deeper than you would expect them to go because of the lack of friction, lack of force on the bait. You turn around and you start trolling into the current, they won't go nearly as deep as you think they would go for that lead lane. So that current is very, very, you know, it's a, it's a kind of situation that creates a flux that you cannot control. That's why a lot of people, when they're pulling crankbaits in current, will also combine weight with that. In other words, they go with like a three-way setup so that they know they're on bottom. They absolutely, absolutely can feel that sinker hitting the bottom. They know they're on bottom, so they don't have to worry about where they're at in the water column. The Precision Trolling app is all based on smooth, flat, calm water, open water environments. It's not, you know, it's not designed to function in flowing water. And so you really can't use it as a guideline when you're trolling cranks and rivers. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about after you, you kind of brought that up. Um, what, what, how do you kind of handle those types of situations in places like the Niagara River, where, where you've got uh, heavy current and, and you're dealing with a lot of different species of fish that could be in there? How do you kind of handle that situation? Well, the stronger the current becomes in any body, you know, in any river, the more likely those fish are going to be on the bottom. And there's a, a very simple reason for that. Fish don't want to fight that current. They don't want to be fighting and using up a lot of energy. So what they do is they go to the part of the river that has the slowest current, and that is the bottom. It's something called laminar flow, and it's because of the friction. As water moves along the bottom of a river, the friction causes that water on the bottom to move slower than the water in the upper water column. So fish gravitate to the bottom to get out of that heavy current. And in places like the, uh, you know, the Niagara River, it's deep and it's very swift. You're not getting down to that bottom if you don't put weight on. And so most of the guys there are running a three-way setup. They use a pencil sinker on a three-way swivel with about a five-foot leader back to, in this case, it's either going to be one of two crankbaits that are very popular. It's either going to be a maglip or it's going to be a quick fish. The guys there, that's the two crankbaits that they use a lot. And the cool thing about that fishing is they hold the rod in their hand. So they're not putting it in a rod holder. They're holding it in their hand. And when they feel that fish bite, you know, they can lean right back on them and set the hook. It's a very exciting way of fishing. All right. Got a question about uh, the Niagara River, Niagara Bar area. This is uh, recently watched an episode with you fishing that area after that experience on the same trip. What would be the ideal setup for someone to be able to fish both Lake Erie for walleye and Lake Ontario for salmon? Actually, the two bodies of water are very similar. If you've got gear for fishing Lake Erie, you're probably well equipped um, for fishing the Niagara Bar, and uh, especially if you're fishing in near shore waters. The only thing I would say about Lake Ontario and the Niagara Bar is that there's an application there for downriggers, uh, which we typically don't use in Lake Erie. So you're going to want to have a set of downriggers. You're going to want to have some downrigger rods. We normally run 20-pound mono on those. But the other setups are going to be very similar. Um, we run a lot of three, five, seven-color lead core, sometimes as long as 10 colors of lead core. Uh, dipsy divers or slide divers work very well in both bodies of water, um, and it becomes primarily a spoon program. Uh, you're running a lot of spoons, uh, a lot of mini-sized spoons, and also a lot of standard-sized spoons. And when it comes to walleye, we like brighter colors for walleye for spoons. When it comes to salmon and trout, like in Lake Ontario, we like a lot of greens and a lot of chartreuses. So that's a little bit different. But a lot of the same gear that you would catch walleyes on, you're going to be able to catch salmon on and vice versa. All right. Here's, got, here's a rod question. Same idea. Wants to know what rods would you use if you wanted to go salmon and walleye fishing in the Great Lakes? Well, for a 
quite a few years now, we've been using a rod that uh, the Daiwa produces. It's in their Great Lakes series. They make a, a telescopic rod that's designed for inline planer board fishing. And they make a seven and a half foot version and they make an eight and a half foot version. The reason we like them is I'm fishing out of a 20 foot boat. So I can telescope them down and they fit nicely into the rod locker. Smaller boats, you know, 18, 20 foot boats, it's really hard to deal with eight, eight and a half, nine foot rods, especially two piece rods. They just don't fit in rod lockers very well. So that telescoping rod works very well. We use them for our long lines and planer board stuff that we use for walleye trolling. We use exactly the same rod for running our lead core that we do for trout and salmon. Um, so we get a lot of double duty on it. In other words, that one rod is going to work for both walleye and for salmon fishing. And believe me, it's plenty of rod to handle. Even big kings, we've caught a lot of kings up in that 20 to 25 pound range on these rods. They handle it nicely. Um, so it's a, a utilitarian type of rod that's going to work well for a lot of stuff. All right. And then, uh, you said kings. And here's a question from Mike King. Mike wants to know lots of different weights out there. How do you decide what weights to go with when you're getting ready to go fishing? Well, it's interesting because uh, earlier today I had a question a person wrote me and wanted to know when do I fish snap weights as opposed to like a tadpole diver? Those are a couple of offshore products. And, uh, and so generally this is the way I break it down. Since the fish are pretty high in the water column, in other words, in the top 20 foot, you can probably reach them with inline weights snap weights, keel weights, that type of thing, are probably going to reach those fish without too much trouble. If you start feeding fish that are in that 20 foot and deeper range, you're going to need something with a little bit more diving ability. And that's where a tadpole diver uh, will come in because they actually do dive. They actually have a dive profile like a crankbait, uh, but they sink. And so if you control your speed and pick the right size tadpole diver, you can get down in that 20 to 30 foot very, very nicely. So the deeper stuff, I tend to gravitate towards the tadpole. The shallower stuff, I tend to gravitate towards the inline weights. All right. The same gentleman who asked about the rods earlier, uh, he just says he's got a limited budget for getting started. And would you recommend uh, two reels for one rod? Maybe you have one one reel set up with lead core and one rod set up uh, with, with something else. And then uh, or just one reel, one rod. Well, it's interesting because the problem with lead core is it is expensive because you have to dedicate a reel to a particular amount of lead core. So on my boat, uh, when we're salmon fishing, we're carrying three colors two of them, five colors, two of them, seven colors, two of them, 10 colors, two of them. Right there probably busts your budget right there. Um, and so lead core in general can be very, very expensive to get involved in. That's why a lot of guys like to use inline weights or snap weights because they will get you down very similar to what lead core will do, but it's way more effective, uh, cost effective because you can use them on any rod and reel setup that you might already own. So if you're determined you wanna get into the lead core thing, you're going to do it slowly. You're going to buy one or two this year, one or two next year. Remind your wife that Father's Day is coming up here pretty quick, right? You know, it'd be a good time to get a couple more light core setups. Um, but you don't get there overnight. It's going to take you a few seasons to accumulate all that gear. All right. Dale Hickmott asked us a question earlier. He's back again. He says, when you're running 1.7, is that speed over ground or speed at your bait using the fish hawk? And what depth do you choose to put your fish hawk when you're running uh, your different weights, whether it be one ounce, one and a half or two ounce weights? Well, we almost, I guess if you're in shallow water, um, 1.7 could be your surface speed or your speed over ground. But most of the time when we're fishing in deeper water, the fish hawk is in the water. We 
you, the deeper the water gets, the more likely you're dealing with subsurface currents. They're caused because the water on the surface is warmer, the water below is colder, and they move at different rates over one another. So if you're fishing in water that's 50 foot deep or deeper, you absolutely need a fish hawk. Otherwise, you'll have no idea what's going on at depth. In other words, you won't know what your gear is running at the ball. So it's very, very critical. If you're in the western basin of Lake Erie and you're only fishing in 20 feet of water, the fish hawk is not as critical in that situation um, because the water is going to be pretty much the same temperature top to bottom. Where you see stratifications in the water temperature, you have to have a fish hawk or you're fishing blind. All right, Mark, you fish all over the Great Lakes for lots of different species. And when you're out filming, I mean, it's one of those things, too, that you got to get there when the time is right. And how do you kind of time that out and build your schedule to, to put a show like this together? Well, some of it is just through experience. And, and when you've been to a body of water, a lot of times you start to get a sense for when you need to be there, when it's good, when it's not. But I'll tell you, our game plan is pretty simple. We have a network of people that we work with that are sharing information with us. Good fishermen have good networks. You have people you trust who will tell you the truth that will share good information. So we look out to those people, put the feelers out, tell them we're interested in coming to a body of water and ask them if they would please share information. And for the most part, people are very generous in doing just that. Once we figure out that there's a bite going on and we get a couple of sources that are confirming that yes, there is a bite going on. Now, the next thing we wanna do is take a long, hard look at the weather because as you know, mother nature can level that playing field in an instant. So we look at the weather to see whether the weather is gonna be conducive to fishing for the next few days. And if it is, then we pull the pen and we get on the road and we get there as fast as possible. The best way to catch fish is to find out a hot bite and get on that hot bite as soon as you possibly can. Because if you put it off a day or two or a week, there's a very good likelihood that bite is gonna you know, dissipate before you ever get there. The faster you can get to there, you know, to those fish, the better off you're gonna be. And the beauty of the internet is that information is as fresh as it's ever been. Back in the old days, we used to get our information from the bait shops. <laughs> Lord knows how old that information was. Um, but the internet gives you instantaneous results in that result in that regard, so you can get good information quickly. Yeah, what's that like when you roll into a place and, you know, when, when I was in the hunting industry, we'd always call it, you're getting the call. And the call is always, you know, the geese are here or whatever, like, get here right now. Uh, what's that like for you when you guys show up and, and you feel like, hey, we're here at the time to come and get on it, and you get out there and maybe it's not quite what you thought it was? You know, there's no guarantees in fishing. There's no guarantees in hunting. And part of what I like about it is that unknown. You know, tomorrow we're rolling the dice. You know, we're going to go out there and instead of having good information from good, solid fishermen who've been sharing information with us, we're going to go out there and do it the old-fashioned way. We're going to go look for fish with sonar. And when we find them, oh, we're going to see if we can't catch them. And to me, that's very rewarding when you find fish and then figure them out, put them in the boat. To me, that's a very rewarding experience. And so sometimes that's just the best way to go about it. And after a big blow like what we're facing here, that's the only option you had, unless you want to sit on the couch and wait for somebody else to find them for you. <laughs> that, that can be tough. All right. How about your favorite time of year, Mark? When do you like to go out and, and, and do your fishing? There's there's lots of different types of bites, lots of different places. We already talked about ports and species and those kind of things. What's what's your favorite time of year to get out on the water chasing fish? And it's hard to beat the springtime. Those first warm days of spring are pretty hard to beat. You know, I live in northern Michigan, so we have some brutal winters. And uh, when we start getting those very first nice days um, sometimes it happens as early as late March, but usually it's in April. 
um, it's pretty hard not to get fired up and go fishing at that time of year. So it's still cool out, but it's nice enough that you feel like you want to get out on the water and enjoy it. So uh, April and May are pretty darn hard to beat. Um, and on the flip side of that, I really like that late fall stuff too. If you get a nice calm day when it's, uh, you know, late November, early December, oh man, that's, that's awful time, awful good time to be out on the water as well. All right, Aaron McCarthy with question. He'd like to know if you're big on scent for walleye and salmon, what's the advantages of going with scent? Well, uh, there's no question that all fish have great senses of smell and, and scent helps you catch fish. But the biggest problem is that most scent products are water soluble. So you, you put them on your lure and then you put your bait in the water and it washes right back off again. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Or it doesn't make a lot of impact. So the stuff that we've been using for quite a few years now is called Procure Super Gel. And it's a natural scent. It's actually made from real bait fish. And it's a gel that is made with a sticky kind of oily emulsion. And so when you squeeze it onto your lure, it sticks on your lure and stays there and gives you a scent stream in the water to the last 30, 40 minutes. Well, that's a reasonable amount of time. Obviously, after 30 minutes, you need to reapply it. But if it washes off the second you put it in the water, you're getting no benefit from the scent. The other thing I caution people about with using scents is that there are so many scents out there that I would describe as cover scents. Things like garlic and anise um, are really not attractors. They're cover scents. They're designed to cover up unnatural odors that might be on your lures. I'm much more confident by using a scent that smells like something a fish would eat, an alewife scent, an emerald shiner scent, a crayfish scent. You know, those are the types of scents that I think are more powerful because they smell like food. They smell like something the fish is naturally going to eat. In regards to clear water, dirty water, um, scent's much more important in, as the water gets dirtier, and it's much more important when the water gets colder. As the water warms up and is clear, fish become very active. You can catch fish pretty easily without using scent. But in cold water and in dirty water, if you're not using scent, you're missing bites. It's that simple. All right. We've been talking about you guys basically kind of getting up and going and running to these bites. How much changeover has to happen in the boat to do that, Mark? <laughs> if you're going to go, you know, let's say today you're going to be fishing uh, walleyes on Lake Erie, and tomorrow they call you and say, hey, the, the kings are here. You need to get out to Lake Ontario. What does that look like as far as changing over stuff in the boat? looks like a bomb blew up in the boat is what it looks like um, because everything tends to be different, uh, particularly the lures. You know, we put every lure we can cram in the dry storage of our boats. And so at the end of a walleye trip, we have all of our walleye gear and it pretty much fills the boat. We're going to go the next couple of days and we're going to go salmon fishing. All that walleye lures come out and they're all replaced with salmon stuff, with meat rigs and with, you know, with maglip and with spoon and, you know, with other rotators, that kind of thing, the things that we typically use for salmon. So, um, there's a lot of gear and a lot of gear intensive. The way we organize stuff is we have big shelves in our pole barn and essentially everything goes in a Plano box and it goes up on those shelves and they're all got little pieces of tape on them that label what's in them. So at a glance, we can look at those Plano boxes and say, that one's got our reef runners in it. That one's got our husky jerks in it. This one's got our silver streak spoons in it. So at a glance, we can tell what gear is what. And then we basically just get armloads of the stuff loaded in the boat and away we go. All right. How about, uh, you know, you guys are in Port Clinton filming right now. What do you got on the docket the rest of the year? What are some of the trips that you guys have coming up that you're really looking forward to? Well, uh, we typically go to Lake Ontario earlier in the year. And then this year just didn't work out in our schedule. Um, but we'll get on Lake Ontario. It looks like we're probably going to be scheduling a summertime trip there this year. And it's something we've never done. We've never fished salmon at Lake Ontario in July or August. So we're looking forward to doing that. 
And as long as we're going to be that far east, we're probably going to cut across the eastern basin of Lake Erie and put some time in there as well. You know, Dunkirk, um, New York can be very, very good at that time of year as well. So we'll make the route. What basically we'll do is we'll end up on Lake Ontario for a few days and then we'll end up um, in the eastern basin of Lake Erie for a few, two, few days as well. Hopefully we'll come home with two shows in the can. Um, but those are trips that I'm looking forward to because uh, we don't get a lot of time on the fish the eastern basin of Lake Erie. So I'm really looking forward to that. And we've never fished Lake Ontario in the summertime. All right. How about some personalities, Mark? Who are some of the people that uh, that you look forward to seeing on your on your trips and getting out and uh, kind of, I mean, that's part of the thing too, is not just the scenery, but uh, I'm sure you've got friends in all these different ports. What are Who are some of the people that you really look forward to seeing when you guys get out on the road? Well, you know, we talked earlier about our network of people that are sharing information with us. And a lot of instances, those people are charter captains, people that live and breathe the water. They're on the water every single day. And those are some of the very uh, people. The only time we get to see them is when we're in town kind of thing. And so we really look forward to that. Or maybe we get to see them in the wintertime when we're at a sports show. We might bump into each other there. But once or twice a year, we get to see those people. Guys like Frank Campbell uh, over in Niagara, Matt Yamblowski, um over in Niagara, uh, are guys we really look forward to. Uh, Steve Martin over on Lake michigan and lake erie you know i can't hardly imagine um not sitting down and having a cold beer with that guy you know he's just one of our closest personal friends ron levitan is another one as a walleye charters out of toledo beach ohio or you know, toledo beach michigan i should say on in the ohio the michigan waters of lake erie guys like that we really look forward to seeing um, because we just don't get to spend nearly enough time with those guys on the water all right uh we got another question here from james he wants to know if you've fished georgian bay and uh, kind of on that same topic, Eric Modney, a guy that's been on the podcast before, and he's uh, one of our friends from the Canadian side. He says, Mark, the summer salmon on Lake Ontario is something you don't want to miss. But let's talk about Georgian Bay a little bit. Well, I don't know much about it. I mean, obviously, I know where it's at, um, and I know that it's a solid, solid fishery, particularly for lake trout. Um, we have friends that fish it quite often, but I personally have never been there. Uh, we looked at doing a show there a few years ago in the spring at Ice Out for Lake Trout, but it just didn't happen. Uh, logistically, it just didn't fit into our schedules. But that's one of those places that we need to visit. It's um, great fishing. The closest that we've been there uh, to Georgian Bay is a little further to the west there. We've been to the Whaleback region of northern Lake Huron and uh, caught a lot of smallmouth there and had some great trips there. But we haven't actually been in Georgian Bay. Hey, that's uh, you're, you're you're leading right into the next question from Andy, and Andy uh, says, uh, "What do you think about uh, early early season smallmouth bass fishing on Lake Erie?" You know, it can hardly be better. The smallmouth fishery is you know in Erie is just outstanding. Um, early in the season, you're going to fish you know shallow water close to the rocky shorelines. Anyone that's ever visited this area knows that there's a lot of limestone here, a lot of rocky shorelines. Just literally couldn't be more perfect habitat for smallmouth bass. Um, this time of year, you're going to spend a lot of a lot of time in water 10 foot deep or shallower, uh, a lot of casting, um, and you're going to get into some very, very high quality fish as well. So um, all this fishery here is good all around the islands and uh, and all on Lakeshore. You can't hardly beat this area uh, for springtime fishing. There is one sleeper I might talk a little bit about, the Canadian side. Now, right now, we can't get to Canada because the border is closed. But when the border eventually does open, that North Shore of Erie, uh, that Canadian water is red hot for smallmouth, and there are very few fishermen over there targeting them. Yeah, how's that affecting your show, Mark? Not being able to go uh, basically the half of the lakes that you like, at least one half of, of, of the lake anyway. How does that affect your plans and kind of how you guys go about producing your show? 
Well, it makes things a little more challenging. Uh, you know, to be honest, some of those Ontario fisheries that we go to are very good. And you can just set your watch by the fact you're going to catch fish and you're going to get easy shows. So we look forward to that. And it hurts when we don't get to go there. Plus, we have a lot of friends in Canada and we miss seeing those folks as well. Eventually, the border will open and we'll get back into that routine and we'll go back to those fisheries. But uh, um, I like the border waters, the places like uh, like that north shore of, uh, of Lake Erie that I was just talking about. Um, we can access that from Michigan waters. I can launch in Michigan and run over there and fish really good, you know, uncharted waters where hardly anybody is fishing and then put the boat back on the trailer in Michigan and go home if I want to. Uh, those types of fisheries like that are special. Um, other places like Wheatley, um, which is also in Lake Erie, it was a good steelhead fishery. Uh, we really miss going to places like that. World-class steelhead fishing um, that very few people know about. Um, some of the best steelhead fishing in the Great Lakes. and It just happens to be in Ontario water, and we just can't get there right now. All right, we've got uh, another question here. This one's from Mike on Facebook. It says he just got his fish hawk, and he ran it for the first time last week. Do you have any tips on running an X2? Probably... I guess, you know, we've had a, a fair amount of experience with the X2. I guess I'm thinking that you want to run a heavy enough weight. There's a couple different weight options that you can choose from that. You want to run a heavy enough weight that you don't have too much blowback, that you're getting nearly as much of a, of a, of a predictable angle and predictable depth as you possibly can. So the heavier weight will allow you to not have that ball so far back and keep that probe down closer to the depth that you're trying to target. So the bigger ball, I think, works a little bit better on the, uh, on the X2. All right, Eric Modney just uh, stopped in to say once again, don't give away our Lake Erie small water spots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I take back all I said about that North Shore. We'll, we'll delete that part, right? <laughs> I didn't say the port. I just said the North Shore. That's a big shoreline. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mark, uh, is there something that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you tonight? Is there some, some uh, topic or something you wanted to bring up that we didn't get to? No, I, actually, Chris, I'd just like to thank you for what you're doing here. I mean, you're sharing a lot of great fishing information with people. And the folks that are tuning in and are taking advantage of this are going to be better fishermen. And it couldn't happen without the sharing of information. That's what Fishing 401 is all about, is, you know, the idea of fishing information and sharing it openly. And that's what you're doing. And I commend you for what you're doing, man. Well, thanks uh, for do, for saying that, Mark. And again, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, with Trevor, the owner of Fishhawk, and uh, he he just loves the idea too. And uh, our whole mission is to grow Great Lakes fishing. That's that's basically what my job is: is to grow the sport of Great Lakes fishing. So it's a it's a fun job to have, and it's a it's a cool mission statement for us. Uh, and again, for you guys as well, Mark, if people want to know more about you and, and see fishing 411 TV, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, our webpage is always a good place. That's a good landing spot. Fishing411.net. Um, want to know a little bit more about precision trolling? That's precision trolling data.com. Um, and we answer questions every day for people. If you've got questions, fire them off to us through our email, um, reach out to us messenger, however you want to reach out. We'll get the information. We'll get the message and we'll get back to you. All right, Mark Romanak from Fishing 411 TV and Precision Trolling Data. Really appreciate you coming on and uh, good luck on the water uh, as you guys head out of Port Clinton tomorrow and uh, maybe another day or two. Thanks, Chris. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. For more information on fishing the Great Lakes, visit our blog at fishhawkelectronics.com.